Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. We are going to pick up where we left off on Wednesday night. My my hope was to get all the way through the first chapter of Corinthians, and we made it through the first nine verses. So we're going to get through the rest of this chapter this morning. But before we dive in proper, I want to bring you guys up to speed a little bit. Because if we're going to understand what it is that Paul is saying to the church there at Corinth, we need to kind of understand what was going on in Corinth. And so this uh, book that we're getting ready to, to open up, this book of, of 1 Corinthians, it really is just a letter. It's a letter to the church at Corinth. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote them uh, for various reasons, and we'll get into that, but mostly it's a, a letter of correction. And so the Apostle Paul, after establishing his authority uh, in the, the opening verses, uh, now kind of gets into some issues that we're going to see this morning. But Paul the Apostle, he wrote this letter from Ephesus, and so keep that in mind. So Corinth, just kind of to, to scale back, like what's going on? This, this letter to Corinth, what was Corinth all about? So Corinth is a, a city in Greece, and it was totally annihilated. It was torched to the ground by the Romans in 146 BC, and then it was rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BC. And so the Romans came in and conquered Corinth, but then they rebuilt it, and so Corinth was a, a Roman colony. So politically, that's kind of where they stood. They were a, a, a Roman colony. They were under the, the leadership and the, the political power of Rome. But uh, economically, uh, geographically, you know, those things go hand in hand with Corinth because they were on an isthmus, which is a, a, a narrow strip of land that connects two greater uh, land masses. And so there's this little strip of land that separates the Aegean Sea from the Mediterranean Sea, this little strip of land that connects Greece to the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula. Uh, but it was a major uh, place of commerce. So they were two seaports in the city, one on the west and one on the east, that connected these major shipping routes from the uh, Aegean Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. And so there was much money that flowed through there, and because there was much money and it was kind of this trading spot, there was also much, uh, you know, culture. It was kind of a mixing pot. And so if you think about Corinth, think about a place that is uber-wealthy, uh, they worshipped many gods. They, they had temples strewn all over their city. It was a place of, you know, culture and art and architecture and theater. Uh, it was the happening place. It, it was very posh to be uh, a Corinthian from their perspective. But with all of the wealth and all of the culture and really all of the temples, notably the temple Apollos and the temple to Aphrodite, they caused a great deal of moral decay in their culture. So for all of their riches, for all of their culture, for all of their, you know, uh, things that they had going for them, uh, they were morally bankrupt. They were all about working their way up the social ladder. They were, uh, you know, really deep into sexual immorality. In fact, it was kind of synonymous that if you were a girl from Corinth, it was synonymous with a prostitute. Those, those terms could be interchanged. Like, uh, you, it's just the way it was. 
the, the lowest kind of moral insult that you could make of anybody was to call them someone from Corinth. If you called somebody Corinthian, you were saying, man, you are worldly and you are involved in some gnarly stuff. The reason that I am kind of glad to be going through the book of Corinthians, not only because it's God's word, and again, where we are in God's word is where we are in life. No matter where we are in scripture, man, we can glean some amazing truths. But as I said on Wednesday night, man, there's some really obvious similarities between Corinth in Paul's day and the United States in our day. Uh, They were just, I mean, they were all about secular life and all these weird things uh, you know, sexual immorality, uh, materialism, that's really what would mark the, the Corinthian people. Uh, this vulgar materialism and just rampant sexual immorality. And, and you step back and you look at our culture and say, wow, if the shoe fits, right? I mean, we really have, have shifted uh, away from the Lord and to the things of this world. And that was the problem with the Corinthian church. See, in this place of debauchery and worldly living, Somebody showed up, the Apostle Paul, on a second missionary journey, and he came preaching Jesus. And these people living this crazy lifestyle heard about the saving knowledge of Jesus, that their sins could be forgiven, that God had a purpose and a plan for them. And guess what happened? They got saved. They got baptized, and they began to follow the Lord. But what happened is as time went on, they got their eyes off of Jesus, And they got their eyes on to the enticements of the world, the things of the culture. And the the further they got from the Lord, the more they got their eyes on to each other. It is this grave error. And it's one that we can make as well. It's so easy for us as Christians to get our eyes off of the Lord and to get them on to the cares of this world. It's so easy for us, if we're not careful, to be influenced by the culture instead of influencing the culture. Don't you know that that's what the Lord has called us to do? To not be influenced by the culture, but to influence the culture, to be the salt and the light, to point the way to the truth. But when we get our eyes off of Jesus, man, it's trouble. And that's where the Corinthian church was. It was trouble for them. And because their eyes were off the Lord, they had begun to, to shrink back in their faith. And understand this, this is important for us this morning, that there is... One of two directions that you're going with the Lord. You are either moving forward and growing in the Lord, or you are sliding backwards away from the Lord. And this is the lie that we like to tell ourselves. I'm just in neutral. I'm going to kick it in neutral for a while. And I'm just going to, I've been growing. It's been a good season, but now I'm just going to, there's no such thing as just chilling in the Lord. Because what happens is you begin to slide backwards, and that's what was happening to the Corinthian church. And so Paul now is writing this letter of correction, a a misguided people who love the Lord. Paul's saying, hey, be careful. This is where you've gone astray. This is where you need to get back on track. And for us, boy, living in this culture, we're prone to those same things, to be affected by the culture and not to affect the culture. And so this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and this is what I love about the Bible, is that this letter, it was a real letter written to a real church. It was written to the Corinthians, but it was also written for us. See, God in his wisdom, boy, there's so many uh, things that we can glean and learn from and so many applications that we can make. And so we're gonna jump in this morning uh, in verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter one, book of 1 Corinthians. It says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that 
you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any one of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul here, after he kind of introduces uh, himself and says, hey, this is who's writing you this letter. It's Paul the Apostle. These are my credentials. After really encouraging the church at Corinth, although they had many problems, man, they were filled with the Spirit. They were moving in spiritual gifts. Now Paul kind of moves into this first problem that they're dealing with. And the problem that they're dealing with is one of uh, division. There is no unity in the church. There are contentions. And Paul, again, writing this letter from Ephesus, he hears word of what's going on back in Corinth from uh, members of Chloe's household. Now, we don't know who uh, these members of Chloe's household, we don't really know who Chloe is. We don't know if Chloe is a man or a woman. But we know that members of Chloe's household had business both in Corinth and Ephesus on a regular basis. And as they made that trip back and forth, man, Paul was checking in. Hey, how are things going in Corinth? How's the church? Uh, Are they flourishing? And the report that Chloe gave was, man, there's actually division. There's contention. It just wasn't like an agreement to disagree but still stay unified. They were at each other. So There was major uh, division. And it's so sad that uh, division is really a common problem in the church. And if you recall, right, when we were going through the book of Romans, Paul dealt with this issue with the Romans. There was division in the church at Rome. The church at Rome was divided over the issue of food, dietary laws, what they could eat and what they shouldn't eat, and then, uh, you know, religious celebrations, what days they should celebrate certain things. There's division there over non-essential items. And now here in Corinth, in their church, there's division again. But here in Corinth, it's a little bit different. They had divided themselves up into groups, into cliques. Uh, they had said, you know, we're right and you're wrong, while the other groups were saying, no, we're right and you're wrong. And so there was this vicious division that was taking place. And, and part of the church of Corinth said, hey, we are of Paul. We are the Paul party. We're the Paul crew. And we're sticking with our leader. He's the guy who planted the church. He's the man that we should be following. He's, he's the one who started it all. Then there were those who were following Apollos. Now, uh, remember back in Acts who Apollos was. Apollos was uh, one who was very well-spoken. He was uh, very charismatic. And, uh, you know, many Bible teachers believe that he was one who operated in the gifts of the Spirit. So this very charismatic guy. And there were those who saying, man, Apollos is our dude. Right, Paul, he planted the church and, and he's smart and all that. But man, Apollo speaks to me. The man can preach. The man moves in the giftings and he's my guy. We are of Apollos. And then there were those who said, no, we're not of Paul or Apollos. We're of Peter. Right, Peter was OG. He's one of the originals, man. Jesus called him. He walked with Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus told Peter, man, that the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against 
the church. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, Peter. And I'm following the guys with the keys. And remember, there was this contention about Paul the apostle, whether or not he was legitimate or not. So all of this is going into play. And then there was the fourth group that says, hey, we are following Jesus only. And initially, I'm like, man, amen. Those are my peeps right there. Following Jesus only. But here's the thing with them is that they were following Jesus in kind of this weird way to where they weren't part of the local body at all, but they were separated out and said, no, we're just going to do our own thing. We're not going to come into the structure of the church biblically. Uh, We're going to kind of isolate ourselves. So all of these groups really were walking in error, and Paul writes this letter to them, and he pleads with them. He says, please, you guys, don't be divided, verse 10. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Hey, quit being divided. Man, quit being broken up into these these different groups. And the word that is used for divided there in the the Greek is uh, schismata. And schismata is where we get our English word schism. And schism means to divide into factions or groups. And that's right. That's the definition. But schismata in the Greek carries a a stronger meaning. It doesn't mean to just divide. It means to rend or to tear. And so Paul is saying, man, the church is being torn apart. Quit tearing each other apart. Quit letting the body of Christ be torn apart. It was a serious issue. Like I said, it wasn't just a denominational thing where they said, well, we like this style of worship and we're doing this with our kids' church and man, may the Lord be with you guys as he's with us. No, it was like, we are right. We've got the corner on the market and you guys are wrong. And so Paul, he says, man, don't be divided. And he asks them these three questions. He hears that some are of Paul and some are of Apollos and some are of Cephas and some are of Jesus. And he asks this question. He says, he says is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, and were you baptized in the name of Paul? Kind of snap them out of it, like, hey, let's think this thing through, you guys. Like, is Christ divided? And again, the idea, divided, is uh, torn apart, rent. In other words, what Paul is saying is, has Jesus been chopped up into pieces and distributed amongst you guys so that you all have your own little piece of Jesus? You say, that is gross. That is weird. And that's the point. It's very graphic. Paul meant to be graphic. He's saying, what you guys are doing is ridiculous. You're all part of the one body. Christ isn't divided. And he says, were you guys baptized into the name of Paul? Or, or pardon me, was Paul crucified for you? That was his second question. And, and Paul's point is, who died for your sins, you guys? Here you are pledging your allegiance to these men and to these groups, but who was it that died on the cross in your place and paid for your sins? Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it Peter? No. It, 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 was, it was Jesus. But it's human nature to follow human beings. It's just this thing that we have in us to where we follow human leaders. It's the same in the world. It's the same in politics. It's the same in, in the church. And if we're not careful, even as Christians in the body of Christ, we can fall victim to this whole idea of personality cult to where we begin to take these men these uh, women who teach the Bible and put them on a pedestal to really put them in a place uh, that Jesus belongs. And that's the point that Paul's making. Hey, I wasn't crucified for you. Why are you putting me and these other men in the place of Jesus? And we have that today in the church. We have these pastors who are celebrity pastors. Those things should not go in the same sentence, if you ask me, celebrity and pastor. 
right? And now, don't get me, there's some great men who teach, like, man, big fans. But we got to be careful not to put those men in the place of the Lord, because here's the thing. Men are men. Men are flawed. Men will let you down. Men will mislead you. If you put your faith in me or in any other pastor, you're going to find yourself very disillusioned and very disappointed because we're just men. We will let you down. We are never to take and say, oh, man, this, this is my guy. Jesus is our guy. So Paul says, was, G, or was Paul bapt, or crucified for you? No. And he says, you know, were you baptized into the name of Paul? And, and here's the other thing, right? What does it mean to be baptized? It's an act of obedience. It's an act of faith. It's an act of, uh, you know, identification where we identify with the, the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we do when we do baptisms. When you go under the water, you're identifying with the death of Jesus, and you're saying, man, I am dead. I'm dead to my carnal nature. I'm dead to my sin. I'm dead to my thing, my hopes, my dreams, my will. I'm dead to it all. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stay dead? Man, that's why we come out of the water. That's why baptisms are different from drownings, <laughs> because we come out of the water. And when we come out of the water, we're identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. He died. He conquered sin and death, but then he rose again in newness of life. And that's what we do. When we come out of the waters of baptism, we're saying, I am identifying with Jesus and the newness of life that I have in him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. We're new creatures in Christ. And now we're dead to our carnal nature and to our sin and to our hopes and our dreams. And, our, and we're alive to Jesus, to his will for our life, to the things that he wants to pour into us. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, who are you identifying with? You weren't baptized in my name. Think about this, you guys. You were baptized in the name of Jesus because you're identifying with him. Quit identifying with men. And so Paul deals with this division that they are dealing with where they are kind of pledging their allegiance to men. Uh, again, vehemently. Uh, and, you know, again, it's so unfortunate that that this is a reality, that, that people are prone to division, that we're prone to be divided, just like the church at Rome, just like the church at Corinth, just like the church at Wairika. We have to guard against division because here's the thing, we're going to have our differences. And we got different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities, different all sorts of things, socioeconomic uh, levels, uh, we're just different. But why are we all here together in all of our uh, differences in, in all of our diversity. What, what, what are we joined together by? It's the blood of Jesus. That's our commonality. And as soon as we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto our differences, boy, we are looking for trouble. But as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, boy, we're good. Because here's the thing with the divided church. A divided church is an ineffective church. Uh, and we don't want to be. We want to be effective for the Lord. And so Paul says, hey, don't be divided into all these fractions. You're, you're tearing the church apart, which kind of raises the point, right? For me, anyways, it did. Well, what about all the denominations that we have today? You know, we got the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists, and we got, you know, the Calvary Chapel. And we got all sorts of different denominations. There's like, I saw... Uh, a guy on YouTube is a pastor that I, I listen to sometimes. He's, he's doing his thing like 3,000 different denominations in the United States. Say, Man, what's going on? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Yes. Like, it's both. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It all depends. 
right? Uh, Spurgeon, there's a quote that I want to share with you that he says, says, I bless God that there are so many denominations. If there were not men who differ uh, a little in their creeds, we should never get as much gospel as we do. God has sent different men to defend different kinds of truth, but Christ defended and preached all. Christ's testimony was perfect. So Spurgeon's point was like, man, you know, we are all part of the body of Christ. We all belong to the Lord, but the Lord has given you certain passions and certain understandings, given me certain passions and understanding. That's good because collectively we are better for it. But, see, here's the danger. If we believe that we have the market cornered on Jesus and we're the only denomination that's right and everybody else is wrong, then we're in trouble. And again, I'm talking about issues that are non-essential. I'm talking about things that, that we shouldn't be divided about. There are things, obviously, that, that have crept into the church where we say, no, that's not biblical. We're, we're not going to go there. But the second we think that we have the corner on the market, that we think that we are the Jesus church and everybody else is wrong, boy, then we are in trouble because I got news for you. Man, I'm so glad that where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, he shows up. That's this place. He's with us in this place as we worship him and as we, you know, go through his word. But guess what? Jesus is also at the Foursquare Church and at Wynaz and at Grenada Berean and the Baptist Church. And everywhere that he's welcome, man, he shows up. And so it's important for us to remember that, not to err in that place. That, hey, man, we have our differences. We have our different flavors, but we're all one body. And it's not our allegiance to an organization that's going to get us into heaven. It's being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. John Wesley, before we move on from this topic, he had a dream about this issue. And he had a dream where he was standing at the gates of hell. And he heard a voice calling out, are there any Presbyterians present? Yes. Are there any Baptists present? Yes. Are there any... Uh, you know, Methodist present, yes. And then he was then standing before the gates of heaven. Are there any Presbyterians present? No. Are there any Methodists present? No. Are there any Baptists present? No. Are there any Christians present? Yes. See, and that's the thing. We're not Presbyterians or Baptists or whatever. We are Christians. That's what knits us together. And so that's what Paul is saying. Hey, don't be divided. Don't get your eyes off the Lord onto things that don't matter because all it does is render you uh, ineffective. And Paul even says, man, I'm glad to not be a part of that. I'm glad that I'm not adding to the contention. I'm glad that I only baptized a couple of you guys. Now, is that because Paul does not think that baptism is important? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Uh, baptism is very important. It's commanded. It's how we identify with Jesus, just like I talked about. But Paul is saying, my mission was to come and to preach Christ and preach Christ crucified. And that's good. Paul didn't get away from his mission. And guess what? That's our woo, mission. That was close. That's our mission too, is to preach Christ crucified. Right? Jesus is the answer to every single problem that we face in our lives, personally, in our culture, uh, collectively. Jesus is the answer, and we have the answer. And we are to boldly preach Jesus like Paul. We should be like, hey, this is the answer, is Jesus, and Jesus crucified. But you say, man, I don't know how to preach Jesus. I'm not sure, I don't have the right words. I'm not sure what to say or how it's going to come out. And isn't that the way that it is? Like when we have the opportunity to share Jesus, how many of us have been in that situation where we're like, oh, man, I don't know what to say. I don't know how it's going to be received. 
uh, you know, I don't have enough Bible knowledge or this and that. But Paul says, listen, Paul says that I've come to preach the gospel not with words of wisdom or not with cleverness of speaking, what he means. He says, I, I didn't come to preach Jesus in, you know, a, a, a lofty vocabulary or with illustrations that are mind-blowing. He says, I've come to just preach Jesus plainly. That's the key, is to preach Jesus plainly. What cracks me up about this statement of Paul, where he says, hey, I've just come to preach Jesus plainly. Where was Paul preaching just before this? You guys remember? It was Athens. It was on Mars Hill. Do you remember Mars Hill? It's where all of the great thinkers of the day gathered together to worship their many gods. It's where the philosophers gathered to pontificate their existence. And Paul showed up and said, hey, let me tell you about the unknown God. And he began to dive into this kind of sermon that he preached with lofty words and philosophy. And guess what? There was no church planted in Athens. So now here is in Corinth saying, I'm just going to use plain words. And I say that to say this. When we have that feeling like, man, I can't share the gospel because I don't know enough or I'm not sure what to say or how it would be received. Hey, it's, it's not by our power that the gospel bears fruit. It, we are to simply proclaim the gospel simply. And guess what? God gives the increase. You remember the story there in Matthew when Jesus and his disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, who do men say I am? He said, what's the word on the street, fellas? Who do people say that I am? And remember, Peter said, man, some say that you're Jay the B, John the Baptist. Some people say that, that you're Elijah. And Jesus said, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus told Peter there in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. See, isn't that wonderful? The pressure is off us. You can sound like a bumbling idiot as long as you're presenting it in simplicity and truth. And I, for one, take great courage in that. <laughs> this last summer, uh, there at Kidder Creek, uh, man, I had such a fun time at, at uh, family camp this year at Kidder Creek. Uh, but it was there at, at Kidder Creek. You know, Sunday morning rolled around and, uh, you know, I, I preach a sermon just like I normally do. But man, this sermon was just particularly stinky. It was the worst sermon I think I've ever preached in my life. I was like so discouraged. It was just like I kept losing my place and I felt like I wasn't making sense. And I was just like, while I'm preaching, I'm praying like, Lord, please get me out of here. I just want your name to be glorified. And, and I had no funny stories to share or anything. I was like, man, this is just a bomb. That day, like 26 people got baptized. Right? It had nothing to do with me. And then other days I'm like, nailed it. And you know what I get? Like, Pastor Jeremy, are you sure that was right? There's some things that I think, oh, man. <laughs> like, you know, it's not about us, right? And, and that's what Paul is saying. I didn't come to preach with lofty words, but really just in simplicity. And that's where we are off the hook. We can be freed up just to preach Jesus honestly. Verse 18. We're going to now get into this section where Paul uh, begins to contrast the, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Because it's the wisdom of the world that Corinth was getting sucked back into. Verse 18. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For Jews request a sign. 
and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolish. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. And so now Paul says, listen, uh, this, is, this is beyond our own understanding. To the Corinthians who are so prone to their intellect and to lean on their own understanding, Paul says, listen, if you lean on your own understanding, man, what you're going to end up with is a big old fat goose egg. Right? Because the cross is foolishness to the world. You think about that for a minute. Just step back from Christianity and look at it from a 30,000-foot view. So some dude walked the earth 2,000 years ago, died on a Roman cross, and if I believe in him, somehow my sins are magically forgiven and I go to heaven. And what I'm to do now is to sacrifice my whole entire life to take up the cross, to lose my life, and then I'll find it. Uh, I don't know about that. Like, to our, our, our carnal nature... Uh, the gospel is almost offensive. The cross is just foolishness. It, it, it's really just, why, why are you guys so obsessed with the cross? The world says, man, it's just dumb. Uh, the cross to the world is a fashion accessory by and large, unfortunately. So many people, they just wear crosses. Oh, what? This is cool, man. It's like fashion statement. It's not cool. It's like wearing like hypodermic needles for earrings or like a firing squad necklace or something. It, it was the picture of the most grotesque form of capital punishment. But see, we don't celebrate the brutality of the cross. We're reminded and we're grateful for what Jesus went through. It's a picture of what the price that we owed. But what we celebrate in the cross is the price that was paid. The price was paid. But see, to the world, through our own intellect, it's, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And Paul says, man, the things of the cross, it's just not going to click through our own human wisdom. It's only the Lord who can give us that understanding. And, and Paul kind of calls on the, the, the elites of the day. He says, all right, you know, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer? Uh, the, the wise would be... Uh, the, the expert in the matter. The scribe would be like a, a, an author or uh, an interpreter. Uh, the disputer would be a philosopher. Paul, Paul calls on to the intellectual elite and says, hey, where are you guys? Uh, and he kind of goes through this idea that it doesn't make sense to, sense to us intellectually. Now, before I go any further, I, I want to say that you know, because I've heard people say to me, you know, Christianity is just a crutch and you have to be a sheep and all this. And I say, praise the Lord, I'm a sheep and Jesus is my shepherd. And I'm glad for all that. But the Lord tells us in Isaiah, he says, come and let us reason together. Right? Christianity is not a, a religion where you check your brain at the door and walk by blind faith. Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they've been washed white as snow. Come, let us reason together. We can approach the Bible intellectually. It's so deep. It's so beautiful. It's so poetic. But there is a limit to our understanding. And when we come to the end of our human understanding, of our human wisdom, boy, you're going to hit a wall. And you are then at a crossroads. Are you going to believe or are you going to reject? And the Lord has given you plenty of evidence to believe, to, to sort it through with your intellect. But if you stop there and lean only on your intellect, you're never going to get it. It's not until you say, all right, Lord, I surrender. See, because the Jews, see, they didn't believe because they wanted a sign. Think about this. Think, think this through with me. 
The Jews wanted a sign that Jesus was God. Hello? Jesus, what did he do when he was on earth? He, uh, miracles? Lots and lots of miracles. Man, he, he turned water into wine. He calmed the raging storm. He fed 20,000 people with the little boy's lunch. He healed the leper, the blind, the lame, on and on and on and said, show us a sign. We want to see a sign so that we can know that you are the Messiah. But that was the Jewish people. God had communicated to them through signs. Think about their wanderings in the wilderness. Think about their prophets. Elijah said, there's not going to be any rain for three years. And guess what? It didn't rain for three years. Then he called down fire from heaven. Then he prayed again and it rained. You think about the, the wilderness, when the nation of Israel was going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. There was a giant pillar of cloud by day and a giant pillar of fire by night that went with them everywhere they went. Every morning they woke up, there was manna to eat. Everywhere they went, there was a rock that followed them. For 40 years, their sandals didn't wear out. They're close. And yet they didn't enter into the promised land for an entire generation. It took them 40 years to make an eight-week trip. Why? The Bible says because of their unbelief. So if evidence equals faith, well, we got a problem. Because it doesn't. See, it's not a lack of evidence that we come up against. It's a surplus of our pride. We say, I don't want to submit to the authority of God. And so the Jews said, we want a sign. Jesus was a stumbling block to them. And when in our intellect we say, boy, I'm going to just go as far as I can understand and I'm not going to have faith, I'm just going to have intellect, Jesus will be a stumbling block for you too. It will be foolishness. The cross won't make sense. See, Jesus, and we've talked about this, Jesus, this picture of the rock that he is, right? He's our foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He was the rock in the wilderness that brought refreshment. He, he's our stability, the, the rock of our salvation. Jesus is everything. But he's also the judge, right? In Matthew, Jesus speaks of himself and he says, you know, you can fall on the rock in brokenness or the rock can fall on you and crush you. In other words, you can fall upon the rock of Jesus in brokenness, broken over your sin, say, Lord, I surrender. I've come to the end of my own wisdom and I'm seeking you. And you can be saved or you can reject Jesus in your pride and someday you will face his wrath and judgment. The prophecy in Daniel where the rock that was cut without hands came from the mountain and destroyed the statue that represented the leaders of this world. And, and so unto the Jews who said, man, we got to have a sign. Jesus was a stumbling block. If you're one who says, man, I have to have a sign. Jesus has given you a sign. He's revealed himself through nature. He's revealed himself through God's word, inerrant, perfect, filled with prophecy. He's revealed himself through his son, Jesus. He says, come, let us reason together but you will come to an end of your reasoning where you need to have faith. Secondly, Paul uses the Greeks. The Greeks said, oh man, the Greeks seek wisdom. They're all about their philosophy and everything else. And again, that, that comes to an end. The Greeks though, they weren't stumbled by Jesus. The Greeks, what did they do? They thought it was foolishness. It was laughable. They said, oh, that's stupid Jesus. That's, that's right. That's, that's dumb. We don't buy that. We're smarter than that. You guys just don't get it because you're peasants, right? And so Paul says, the Jews, they seek a sign. The, the, the Greeks, they, they, they look for wisdom. But here's the key. Uh, we preach Christ crucified. See, Paul says, when you just grab a hold of the simplicity of that message, and that's where salvation is, is found. Laughable to the Greek, a stumbling block to the Jew, 
But any one of them, if they put their faith in Christ, you know what they find? They find Jesus. They find Jesus. And uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. So is God foolish? No. Is God weak? It says the weakness of God uh, is stronger than the strength of man. It's just a picture. It's, it's an idea. That, that our wisdom, man, it, it pales in comparison to God's wisdom. And, you know, here's the thing. Like, I've got a little, little boy. He's six years old. And, you know, he thinks he knows everything about everything. And it drives me crazy. You know, uh, whenever I'm working on something, that doesn't go there. This is how you put it back together. And, and I, you know, told you guys a story a few months ago that, we, you know, we were out cutting firewood. And we're on our way home from cutting firewood. And, and he's like, Dad, home is the other way. I'm like, buddy, home is, and he's just like getting frustrated. Like, I know which way to go. I'm like, son, do you trust me? Like, do, do you love me? Do, do you trust me? Yes, then follow me. I know you don't understand, but follow me because you don't know as much as you think. And that's where we are with the Lord. Lord says, trust me. I love you. You know it. He's given us enough to trust him. And, and Paul here says, uh, you know, the, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Uh, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. You remember what God said to Job? Job was getting a little cocky with the Lord. Thought he knew what was going on. And, and God was like, Job, can I ask you a question? Where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundations? Tell me, do you have understanding? Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. And so we don't know as much as we think we know. And that's why Proverbs tells us that we're to trust the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. There comes a point to where we simply just have to say, Lord, I trust you. And then we'll look at these last uh, few verses that where really Paul corrects their perspective uh, that's wrong. Again, the Corinthians, they were all about the things of, of this world and uh, having status uh, in this world. But, but Paul here, he sets them straight, starting in verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world, put to, put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So the Corinthians... You know, they thought they were the bee's knees. They thought that they were, you know, working their way up the, the social ladder. And, and, and Paul says, hey, I want to remind you guys that the Lord uses the, the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And the, the, or the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish to confound the wise. That, you know, the world values the, the wealthy. The world values the, you know, the tall, rich, and handsome, the influential. But the Lord says, I use the foolish things to confound the wise. I use the, the weak things to confound the strong. Now, this is, is good for us to understand this morning for a couple different reasons. First of all, the greatest of us who are human beings, compared to the Lord, our wisdom is foolishness. Our, our strength is, is weakness. You guys, you guys know the Hulkster? Hulk? Hulk Hogan. The Hulk got saved. You guys know that? 
he's a Christian now. It's so awesome. He goes to a Baptist church and he was telling Joe Rogan all about it and everything else. And it was just this cool thing. I'm like, dude, I love Hulk Hogan. I would stay up till midnight when I was a kid to watch Hulk Hogan take on Andre the Giant. And I was just like, go, you know, and it was all theatric. I'm like, you can't die, Hulk. You can do it. But he came to know Jesus. But we have this tendency to be like, whoa, Hulk Hogan got saved. Ooh. But Hulk Hogan is, is nobody. Right? I mean, he's somebody to us, but in God's economy, it's like, and that's not why he was saved. The other side of that coin is that we are who are nobodies, which is all of us, right? And there's no TV specials about any of us, I don't think. Hopefully there never will be. Uh, but the Lord uses us in our weakness. We say, ah, I don't have what it takes, Lord. I don't have enough. It's not about you. It's about him. And then when he uses you to accomplish his will, to accomplish things that are eternal, guess who gets the credit? He does. That's the greatest thing uh, of all. And I'm a walking testimony to that reality. That, that when people come up to me occasionally and say, Pastor Jeremy, that was great. That really spoke to me. I can say, that had nothing to do with me. I'm telling you what, I'm the foolish that the Lord is using to confound the wise. And so we can take great confidence and say, all right, Lord, it's not in the, you know, the, the, the eloquence that I, I proclaim or the wisdom that I use. Lord, it's just that I, I proclaim it simply and that you use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. What a beautiful thing that that is. And then Paul closes out here uh, with this, that Jesus is our wisdom, that he is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. What a wonderful truth that that is. That, man, anything that we need to know, if there's any question, you know, what direction do I go? Where do I go from here? How am I, man, the Lord is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. And we have been justified just as though we have never sinned. See, that's the beauty. That's what makes us Christians is when we say, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize my need for forgiveness. And we believe that Jesus on the cross took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness in exchange. It's imputed righteousness. That's what it means when we say we have Jesus as our righteousness, that we have been sanctified, that we've been set apart. God has plucked us up out of the world and, and, and made us his. We're set apart for him. And he's redeemed us. We were all headed for destruction. And he said, I'm taking this thing that is bound for destruction out of the garbage heap, and I'm going to give it value and worth. And that's what Jesus has done. And then Paul ends this chapter by saying, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Again, he says, hey, man, don't glory in man. Don't glory in your own wisdom. Don't glory in in the group that you belong to, glory in Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. And that's so important for us today. It, it rang true for the church at Corinth and it rings true for the church at Wairika that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're so easily distracted. We're so easily led astray. But let us keep our eyes and let us glory in who the Lord is and what he's done in our lives and just hold fast to who the Lord is. And I can't think of a better way to hold fast to who Jesus is than to come to the table like he's invited us and to partake of the elements of the body represented in the cracker and the blood represented in the juice. That we come forward and say, Lord, I'm going to glory in you and you alone. You are going to be the centerpiece, the head of my life. 
And just like Paul gave the Corinthian church some perspective, man, the Lord is giving us perspective this morning too as we come. We just say, Lord, I want to make you the head of my life again. I want to be surrendered. I want to walk for your will and not my own. I don't want to lean on my own understanding, but I want to to trust you with all of my heart. And that work, man, it's a work that takes place between you and the Lord. And as we come to the table, remember, Jesus invited the disciples to come and do this in remembrance of me. How is it that we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord? It's by remembering who he is. It's by remembering what he's done. And as we remember what he's done for us, boy, by implication, we can't help but remember who we are now. We were sinners. We were lost. And now we're saints. Now we're saved. And we can glory in that. So Lord, thank you so much for the work of the cross. Thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, that it leads us and guides us and teaches us. And Lord, that it's trustworthy and dependable. And and Lord, help us to, to take those corrections that Paul gave to the church at Corinth. And Lord, let us apply them to our lives. I pray that we wouldn't be proud or haughty and say that that's for somebody else, but Lord, that we would take that in, that we would avoid division and pledging our allegiance to men, that we would avoid being puffed up and thinking that we're greater than we are. Lord, that we wouldn't be those who lean on our own understanding, but Lord, that we, just like Paul said, would glory in you and make you the head of our lives again, that focus. And as we come to the table, Lord, we fully recognize our unworthiness. We recognize that we come Lord, as beggars, as broken, but Lord, we come as invited guests to sup at the table, to be reminded that you've taken us out of our state of brokenness and that you've set our feet on the firm foundation of your son, Jesus. And so as we take in the bread, Lord, we take in that truth again. Lord, that it was by your stripes that we're healed. It was because you're bound that we experience freedom. Lord, as we take in the juice, we take in that truth again, that we are cleansed from all of our sin that we have been sanctified, set apart, that your righteousness has been imputed to us. And as we leave this place, Lord, I pray that we would leave with our eyes fixed on you. Walking in surrender. Lord, but as we come to the table, Lord, we do remember. And we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.